This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb J., Sam VR, Lydia, Susanna, and Stephen. First we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Caleb J. Caleb wants to know, why don't we use the screens and projectors for our worship? There are a lot of reasons, Caleb, so let me give you two big ones, a practical reason and a more philosophical one. Let's start with the philosophical one. There's nothing wrong with screens per se, but in the 21st century we spend a lot of time on screens. In fact, a lot of our lives are mediated through screens. We live more in front of the screen than we do in real life. So there's a benefit as we observe the Sabbath in taking a rest from screens. Let me also give you a practical reason. When you're watching words on a slide, as soon as the button is clicked and the slide changes, those words are gone. There's no way to go back and reflect on them. Also, you can't look ahead and prepare yourself because you don't get to push the button for yourself. Another characteristic of the 21st century is increasing illiteracy. We can read, technically speaking, but we don't have the kind of literary ability or knowledge that past generations often did. Now, this is especially true in the church. By definition, Christians are supposed to be people of the word. Now, switching from books to screens isn't the only reason for our biblical illiteracy, but it doesn't help. Which is why at Grace, we love having the whole service in our hands. We can go back and reflect. We can flip ahead and prepare. After the service is done, you can even take it with you. It's hard to argue with that. And now Sam VR has a question. In fact, two questions. He asks, can you do a sermon series on 1 Corinthians? Because I just read it and I think I can learn a lot more from it. And he also asks, what is the point of the book of Philemon? Because I just read it and it doesn't seem to teach anything. That is two questions, Sam, but they're related, so I'm going to allow it. Because both questions have to do with what I preach and when I preach it. At Grace, we almost always preach line by line through entire books, which means we spend a lot of time in whatever we happen to be studying at the moment. For example, we started Matthew's Gospel in September of 2021, which means that between the two of us, Pastor Dan and I have been preaching in Matthew for two years and two months. Will we do 1 Corinthians next? Honestly, I have no idea. That's a decision to be made in prayer. God hasn't yet directed us when it comes to what comes after Matthew. As far as Philemon goes, I think you might need to reread it. This is a short letter in which Paul pleads for the life of an enslaved brother with a man he apparently served. Paul asks Philemon to treat that man, Onesimus, as he would treat Paul himself, and he even offers to pay any debt Onesimus owes. If you ask me, that teaches a powerful lesson in Christ-like behavior and teaches it not through doctrine, but by example. And now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Lydia. Let's give Lydia a round of applause. 
Here's Lydia's question. Why in the Bible does God get mad at people when he says he loves everyone? To answer this question, Lydia, we're going to have to talk about love and about anger, too. The way you've asked the question suggests that love and anger are somehow incompatible, that if you love someone, you would never get angry with them, or that if you get mad at them, then you must not love them. And we'll come back to this in a minute and ask whether that's really true. But first, I want to talk about the emotional life of God. The thing is, he doesn't have one, at least not the way we think of it. God is spirit, so he doesn't have hormones, and a lot of human emotion is tied to our physiology, to our bodies. Consider anger. When you get mad, your nostrils flare, your blood feels like it's boiling, your heart thumps in your chest so hard you think you can hear it, your face might turn red too, and your hands will be shaky with rage. Now, to have any of those emotional responses, to feel anger in that way, first, you need a body. These are physical reactions, after all. And again, since God is spirit, he doesn't flare his nostrils or turn red or shake his fists. He doesn't have nostrils. He doesn't have fists. I know what you're thinking. If God doesn't have human emotions because he doesn't have a human body, then why does the Bible talk about him as if he does? The Bible says God sees things and hears things. It says he's angry and wrathful or he's delighted and satisfied. The Bible actually says God has a nose, in fact, a long nose. Because in Hebrew, saying someone has a long nose is how you say they're patient and long-suffering. A person with a short nose in Hebrew is like a person with a short fuse in English. In other words, a person who gets mad easily. That can be really puzzling and frustrating to have the Bible describe God in ways like this, ways that make him sound like a really big, really strong human, when actually God is spirit and not like this at all. So what's going on? Well, the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us, and that means that God accommodates his language to our understanding. The Bible often describes God's actions and his thoughts and feelings the way that you would describe the inner and outer life of a human being. What's more, even though these are not literal ways of describing God, they are still accurate ways. They use analogy and metaphor, yes, but they're not misleading. So, on the one hand, it's not wrong to talk about God's anger, and on the other, we have to remember that God's anger is a completely different thing than human anger. Not only does God not have a body, but God also has no sin. His anger, like all of him, is perfect and never wrong. Now, the technical term for this way of describing God using human terms is anthropomorphism. In Greek, an anthropos is a human being, and morphology is form. So that word means describing God as if he had human form, which, of course, in Jesus, he absolutely does. Everything I've just said has to be qualified in a major way, because in the Incarnation, the Divine Son took on flesh and became one of us. Jesus is fully God and fully man, so descriptions of Jesus are a whole other matter. Now, let's go back to the underlying assumption in your question that love and anger are incompatible. If God is love, 
and God loved the world so much he sent his son to seek and save us, then how could he ever be mad at us? Well, ask your mom and dad if love and anger are incompatible, and they might tell you that sometimes loving someone and being mad at them actually go hand in hand. When someone you love does what is wrong, when someone you love chooses sin and destruction over forgiveness and fullness, well, you're going to get angry about that, and this kind of righteous anger is understandable. Sometimes even righteous anger in human beings goes over the line. In fact, there's almost always a little sin mixed in, even with our purest feelings. But in God's case, there never is. His anger, like his love, is perfect. There's nothing incompatible between the two. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Susanna asks, what would you rather do, get nursery duty or be one of the music people at church? This is a tough one, Susanna, because on the one hand, I am terrified of little babies. Just one little baby is enough to scare me, but a whole room full of them? I'm starting to shake just thinking about it. On the other hand, in college, I took voice lessons with a professor in the music department, and she actually gave me a role in an operetta that the school put on as a mute. That's right. I was so bad at singing that they didn't even let me sing a single note on stage. People who were there, however, felt that even my silence was enough to steal the show. All that said, maybe for now, I'll stick with teaching and preaching. And finally, Stephen wants to know, how old is the big question in years and months? Well, Stephen, the very first episode of The Big Question was released on Sunday, January 24th in the year 2021. Since then, we've had a total of 117 episodes, including this one, because we've taken some breaks from our weekly schedule along the way. So by my reckoning, it's been two years and 11 months since we started. But before The Big Question was a podcast, I used to try and answer questions in the few minutes before church began. The whole reason for the podcast, in fact, was that I needed more time because you all had so many good questions. So in some sense, we've been doing this even longer than the almost three years since the podcast began. And next month will be our third anniversary. I wonder if we'll do anything special to celebrate the birthday of the big question. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking The Big Questions.